Well, again, welcome to Life Church. We have a TMT, a two-minute training. So today is the beginning of a new season in the church. This is Pentecost starting today. Now, we've been going through the church calendar this last year. It's a little atypical for us here at Life Church, but we're trying to figure out what the rest of the church is experiencing. So much of the church follows this calendar, this idea of seasons. So we're trying to figure it out. Right now, we're in Pentecost. You see the red over there. And you'll notice that what we've gone through so far this year is Advent. So before Christmas, you have the looking forward to the coming of the Lord. It's Advent and Christmas. And then after Christmas, you have Epiphany, which is not just the birth of the Christ, but the revelation of Christ. And then Lent, 40 days, where we uh, spend time uh, repenting of our sin and thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, even to the cross. And then Easter, after Lent, is 40 days of Jesus' appearances. Uh, sometimes people say 50 if you include the 10 days in between. And then you see Pentecost after that. Some people will see Pentecost as a much longer season. It goes into ordinary time, which is, I guess, like the church free-for-all or something like that. You know, it's, it's all the other stuff. But, but Pentecost, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of attention given to God the Father and God the Son so far in the church calendar. So here the Holy Spirit comes to the forward. And the Pentecost season is also a time to think about what it means to be the church. What does it mean to be a people called by God, following Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we do that and do that well? Well, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to do that very thing here in Pentecost. It's called Pentecost because it's 50 days after Passover for the Jews, or 50 days after Easter, Penta meaning 50. Well, here's what happened 50 days after Easter in Acts chapter 2. I'll lead us into the reading for the day. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, lift up his voice and address them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I was reading an article about Michael Phelps, and you know, of course, he's the Olympic swimmer, and uh, he has 28 Olympic medals, and 23 of them are gold, which is pretty impressive. Yes, wow. Um, So I was reading this article about his training routine, like how this happened, Um, and there are lots of reasons, but uh, when he was training for the Olympics, he did things like this. He ate 8 to 10,000 calories a day. Um, He swam 50 miles a week. He took ice baths. And for a reason, I think it must have something to do with his ability to use oxygen. He slept in a room 9,000 feet above sea level every night. So to all of us, at least to me, this sounds like bizarre and potentially dangerous behavior. Um, But to explain it, Michael Phelps said, my whole thing started from one dream and I just never gave up. He wanted to be an Olympic champion. And he tailored his lifestyle to fit that goal. So what seems odd or ridiculous or even foolish to us makes perfect sense for someone who has his goal or his purpose. So purpose drives lifestyle. And the church is like that. It is God's new community, and it isn't like other communities or organizations or even families, because it has its own distinct purpose, which determines what it should look like, which determines how it will live. Acts 2 records the creation of the church, which we we just read, and it tells us what this new community will look like. Quite frankly, it's pretty strange. And to some people, it might even look foolish or dangerous. But that's because the life of the church must be driven by the purpose of the church. So Acts 2 is going to tell us what the church looks like and why it looks like that. So that's what we're jumping into today. So first of all, a little background. I'm sure you all know this, but just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. Um, as, as Nathan just said when he reviewed uh, what Pentecost is, at this point, Jesus has died on the cross and he has risen from the dead. He has spent 40 days with his disciples and his other followers. He eats with them. He teaches them. He encourages them. 
And then he gives them their purpose. And we see this recorded in the chapter right before, Acts 1. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he tells them that they need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends into heaven. There he goes. He's gone. And so they're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then they will begin to live according to the purpose that God has laid out for them, that Jesus has laid out for them. And so that brings us to Acts chapter 2. It's 10 days after Jesus' ascension, and it's the Jewish festival called Pentecost, which, as Nathan said, comes 50 days after Passover. Pentecost, generally for the Jews, celebrates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So Passover remembers their escape from Egypt. Pentecost remembers the gift of the law at Mount Sinai. And the Jews would typically gather at the temple to celebrate. And often there were Jews from all over the known world uh, who were there to celebrate Pentecost, not just Jews who lived in Jerusalem or Israel. So the followers of Jesus were likely in the temple, God's house, the house that they talk about in verse 2, when our action starts in in chapter 2. And so we see right away that something powerful suddenly begins to happen. The signs of this new power are a violent wind and tongues of fire. Both of these images represent a great power. A rushing violent wind is a powerful thing, as we in Sioux Falls have learned over the last few weeks. Um, I I honestly am not sure I knew how powerful a wind could be until the last couple weeks. Uh, It can honestly be pretty scary, the sound of a rushing violent wind. And of course, tongues of fire, fire is a powerful thing that can consume everything in its path. I just saw Jeannie adjusting the fire that stands right beside me. I assume with the taking care that it not get knocked over and start to consume things because fire is a dangerous, powerful thing. So a rushing wind and tongues of fire, both of these point to God's power to do what he wants to do. God is powerful. He can go where he wants to go. He can consume what he wants to consume. And in this particular case, both the wind and the fire, as they have in the past, represent the presence of the Holy Spirit. So our text tells us that the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we want to ask, what does that mean, that they're filled with the Holy Spirit? And this is the very question the people around them who are watching what's happening ask. They say, what does this mean? Um, Some of them conjecture what it means, but they're wrong, and Peter makes it very clear. So the real question is, what does this mean? And it's a question we should be asking as well. What does this mean? It means that in this moment, God is doing something new, something that hasn't been done before. Something that the prophets looked forward to, Joel, but did not experience themselves. I think that's a really profound thing, that all these great saints of the Old Testament look forward to a day that we live in. Joel wishes he could have experienced what we get to experience. In this moment, in Acts 2, God, the Holy Spirit, was pouring out a new power, which created a new people, who were given a new purpose. So those are the three things we want to talk about today. The new power, the new people, and their new purpose. So first, the new power. The filling up with the Holy Spirit brings new power to those who are filled. 
We see this in lots of ways in this passage. The most obvious is that they speak in tongues. I don't think it's the only one. For example, the boldness of the disciples is clearly a work of power. These are the people who were running scared 50 days ago. Um, they're not anymore. But the most obvious, perhaps, work of power in this passage is that they begin to speak in tongues. The believers were given the power to speak in other human languages that they didn't normally speak. We're told that there are Jews from all over the world there, you know, that list uh, that Nathan read from Acts, from Acts chapter 2. Um, and the disciples, the believers, start start speaking in the languages that are what missiologists call their heart language. Um, the, the text says they're native tongues. This is the language you learn as an infant at the, at the knees of your parents or uh, family circle. Um, it's the language you think in, it's the language you dream in, it's the language of your heart. The disciples are given the power to speak in people's heart language. Why? What does this mean? I think it means that God comes down to us. He makes himself known to us. He accommodates his glory and power to our weakness and need. We don't have to go up to him. We don't have to learn his language. He comes down and he speaks our language. It means that God has his eye on all the peoples of the world. He knows them and calls them in such a way that they can respond. God doesn't have his eye on a few select groups. God speaks every language, and God makes his people speak every language so that his salvation can go out to the ends of the earth. It means that the church is supposed to get on board with this plan. It means the church is being told right from the very first moment that the Holy Spirit will give them power not for their own sake, but for the sake of others. It means that the power of the church is always a power that is for others, never for itself. As the book of Acts progresses, we'll see that the power given to the believers by the Holy Spirit manifests itself in all sorts of ways. Uh, everything from raising the dead, to loving the poor, to being able to repent of our sins, uh, to healing the sick, etc., etc., etc. There are tons and tons and tons of ways in which this power is manifested in the church. And this power, through this new power, we see the creation of a new people. When we read Acts 2, we're reading a creation story, kind of like Genesis chapter 1. It's a creation story. Or maybe it's better that we call it a recreation story. In the lectionary, uh, which is what we're preaching out of this year, which is the church's book that kind of tells uh, what text should be used each week um, in, in the Sunday service, uh, today's scripture is paired with Genesis 11 in the lectionary. And um, Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, which I'm guessing most many of you are very familiar with. Um, in the story of the Tower of Babel, the people band together to build a tower that's going to reach up to heaven so that they can make a name for themselves. That's what they want. They want to exert their own power for their own purposes. And God says, nope, you're not going to do that. God comes down and divides their languages so they can no longer understand each other. They can't work together. They can't accomplish their purposes. They are scattered, and their illusions of power are shattered, and rightly so. They are uncreated. 
in Genesis 11. Acts 2 is the reversal of that story. Acts 2 is a story of creation rather than uncreation. It is a reversal of what happened in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, the people work out of their own power. In Acts 2, the people work out of the power of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 11, the people are divided by separate languages that they can't, so they can't understand each other. In Acts 2, the people are united by the ability to speak and understand each other's languages. In Genesis 11, God scatters the people. In Acts 2, God gathers the people and he unites the people. So we have here a new community, a new people that are created out of, we could say, the dust of the earth. And they are made into something new, and they are given new life by this power, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So the next question we want to ask is, what constitutes this new people? Who are these new people? What do they look like? What does this new community look like? The text goes out of its way to tell us how this new community is and is not constituted. The text, I think, wants us to ask this question, and the text answers it pretty clearly. First, the new people are those who have trusted in Jesus and have been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what constitutes the new people. The text is clear that this is actually more than just the 12 disciples. Our text uses the word they a lot. Um, and whenever you have a, a pronoun like that, you want to back up and try and figure out what it refers to. So who is the they in our passage? Well, you have to go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 15 to figure out who they refers to. And it refers to all those who have put their trust in Jesus. And Acts 1 says there's about 120 people like that. So it says there's about 120 of them. So it certainly includes the 12 disciples, but it's not limited to the 12 disciples. There's others who have followed Jesus, who have put their trust in him, and who are waiting to do this thing that Jesus has called them to do. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. So they, the 120, are the ones who are all together. They are the ones who are touched by fire. They are the ones who are filled by the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who begin to speak in different tongues. So, first, the people, this new community is constituted by those who put their trust and belief in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, the text is clear that there are certain categories that the world's cultures are used to using, but are not going to be used by the Holy Spirit. This new community will not be organized according to certain principles that the world uses to organize communities. And we see this in the quote from Joel. The Holy Spirit will empower men and women, young and old, slave and free. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. All of them, the 120 believers, receive the Holy Spirit. All of them are given the power to speak in tongues. All of them begin speaking with authority about Jesus and his salvation. These distinctions, men and women, old and young, slave and free, social status, these distinctions have been commonly used by human cultures since the dawn of time, or perhaps I should say since Genesis 3, 
to organize themselves, usually with one side exercising dominance over the other. But in Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit is given to all the believers, regardless of sex, age, or social status. So again, I think we should ask, what does this mean? Well, first, I think we do need to say what it doesn't mean. This text does not mean that God is conforming to the modern idea of affirmative inclusiveness. God is not creating a kingdom in which he respects and validates the personal identity and power of each individual. That is exactly what he said no to at Babel. God is creating a community in which each individual is transformed by God and united to God and to God's people. Each person is given a new identity that is based on God's work, not their own work. These people do not exist and work out of their own power and identity. They exist and work by the new power and new identity that comes in and through the Holy Spirit. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? It means that the Holy Spirit does not limit his presence or power on the basis of a person's sex, age, or social status. Those are the categories the text gives us. It doesn't give us other categories, it gives us these categories. It means that the church must not place a higher or more determinative value on sex, age, or social status than it does on the work and power of the Holy Spirit. It means that the church is a people who are united in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is one fire that divides. Everybody doesn't get their each individual fire. There's one fire, and it divides into many and rests on each of them. The church is the place where distinction thrives in unity. One flame, one spirit, one people, many gifts. And that leads us to our last uh, point, purpose. Why? Why is the Holy Spirit doing all of this stuff? I mean, is it just kind of a fun party trick, or is something else going on? Uh, well, obviously, I think something else is going on. Um, and so, again, this is the really important question that we're asking. What does this mean? Just as Joel's prophecy promises the new power and describes the new people, so, too, his prophecy reveals the purpose of all of these things. And that purpose is salvation. Uh, the, the quote that Peter uses from Joel ends with this line, and it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The point of all of this is God's salvation. The Holy Spirit creates and equips the church for a specific purpose. Speaking in tongues is not a party trick, even though it's very, very cool. The purpose of the new power and the new people is God's salvation. The Holy Spirit empowers his people to point to the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit gives them the gift of tongues so that many more people can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ that day. That is the whole point of that power. It's not to make the disciples look good. It's not to give them a new revenue source. It's not to make them famous. It's so that more people can hear the gospel more easily. And as the chapter continues, we see that Peter's sermon does exactly that. 
Peter speaks to the people about Jesus, and in response, we're told that about 3,000 put their trust in Jesus that day. And so in Acts 2, it's really interesting, we see a pattern set up for the church. And that pattern is this. The first thing that happens is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that happens is that there are works of power. The people filled with the Holy Spirit do works of power. And the third thing that happens is that people believe. They're converted. They come to trust in Jesus. And if you read the whole book of Acts, you'll see that that pattern just repeats itself in ever-expanding circles. The gift of the Holy Spirit, works of power, conversion. The people who are converted are filled with the Holy Spirit. They do works of power. More people believe. Those people who believe are filled with the Holy Spirit, they do works of power, more people believe, right? It's a pattern that just keeps expanding outward, just as Jesus said it should. They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. This is the pattern the church should follow, should fall into, until the return of Christ. That's, that's what the church does. This is how the church works. This is the pattern that the church should live in. And it should repeat over and over and over and over again until Christ comes back. The church is those people who are powered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, both by their words and their deeds, to Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's what determines how we live. So, of course, we should ask again, what does this mean? What does this mean for us today, right here in Life Church? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? And I have to admit, as I've been reading Acts 2, I love Acts 2. Um, Dave asked me to preach because he was gone. He said, oh, Christina, can you preach on June 5th? And I said, yeah, sure, without looking at the text. And when I saw the text was Acts 2, I was just thrilled because I love, love, love Acts 2. Um, so I thought, oh, great, this will be a super fun sermon. And it is. Um, but I have to admit, over the last couple of weeks, um, I have felt... Uh, mostly discouraged because of what I see in Acts 2 and what I see in the church in America. And believe me, I'm including myself when I talk about this. Um, that the church as it currently exists around us is, uh, is a discouraging thing to me, to be honest. Let me give you some examples for why it discourages me. The Southern Baptist Convention just released a report that says their organization, which consists of hundreds, if not thousands of churches, has spent the last 20 years working its tail off to protect church leaders who are sexually preying on members of their congregation. The report's online. You can read it if you can stomach it. Multiple mass shootings, including one in an elementary school. And mostly what I hear a lot of Christians talking about is the Second Amendment. and the rampant spread of Christian nationalism, that Christian Americans tend to think that the church's job is to prop up some specific party or government or state in America. I just saw the other day, apparently someone named Taffy Howard is running to be the, the South Dakota representative to Congress, and she's running on the slogan, we need members of Congress who know that Christ is king and who put America first. And she's counting on Christians to think that's a good idea. All of these examples, and we could all come up with many more, 
point to a church that sees its own power and authority as the most important thing. It points to a church that feels lost to me. And so I read Acts 2 and I don't know what to think about it sometimes. Where is that power? Where is that church? Not just out there, but here. I'm, I'm afraid of many things. I'm, uh, I don't trust that the Holy Spirit can do a real work of power. Just little ones that will keep me and my people safe, hopefully. Right? Where is that real power that we see in Acts 2? So what does this mean? And I spent the last week trying to figure that out. And I don't fully know what it means. And I think all of us need to think and pray about that with great seriousness. But here are the conclusions I've come to. I believe it means that we must take the pattern shown in Acts 2 seriously. We must believe that the Holy Spirit will give us power to be his witnesses. We must not despair. And I believe it means that the work of power we need to ask the Holy Spirit for right now is humility. The knowledge and conviction that we follow God, not our own desires, our own rights, or our own nation. The history and teaching of the church, which is what we're kind of trying to live into this year using the lectionary. The history and teaching of the church tells us that the spiritual discipline that helps us practice humility is confession. Confession has been a practice of the church since the very first day. When Peter preaches his sermon and the people say, what should we do? He says, repent, repent, confess. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian um, who lived in Germany, writing in the 1930s when the German church was becoming an accomplice to the Nazi party, wrote to the German Christians, confess, confess, confess. The American church is entrenched in a culture which is terrified to confess, and with good reason. Because it has learned that such confession leads not to forgiveness, but to crucifixion. So as a culture, we have learned that we must do everything in our power to justify ourselves and to defend ourselves. Because if anyone gets wind of the fact that we have done something wrong, they will publicly rip us to shreds. You all know what I'm talking about. We've all seen this happen on Facebook or other social media platforms. Confession will get you killed in this culture. But the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can be radically different. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can be brave enough to confess his or her real sins to a real fellow believer. Because it is in Christ that real, permanent, transformative forgiveness happens. It is Christians who should be able to tell the truth about themselves. Bonhoeffer writes in his book, his wonderful little book, Life Together, but it is the grace, it is the grace of the gospel that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice or a work. He wants you alone. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. 
He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself or our fellow Christians as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God. Bonhoeffer says that the courage and willingness to confess our sins is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. It is a work of power to confess your sins. I know it because as I say it, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to confess my sins to another real Christian to sit down with that person and say, I have broken this commandment of God in these ways. It only happens by a work of power of the Holy Spirit in me that I can do that. It is a radical lifestyle that will look strange and even dangerous to outsiders. The power to confess and the power to forgive in Jesus' name are both gifts that come from the Holy Spirit. And Bonhoeffer says that we should confess to a real other Christian, not just Bonhoeffer, the whole church tradition says we should confess to real other Christians, not just secretly in our hearts to God, because when we confess to another real Christian, they stand in God's place. And we can't deceive ourselves any longer that we've, that we've confessed. Sometimes we confess privately in our hearts so that we don't actually have to confess. That's why I confess privately in my heart, maybe I should say. But when we confess to another Christian, that Christian stands in the place of Jesus. And so we have made a public confession. And so this ability to make a public confession, and again, please don't think I'm saying you have to stand up in front of the church, but to another fellow Christian, that this ability to do that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And like all the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit, its purpose is to witness to Jesus Christ. It is a work of power, and works of power always point to Jesus. And so it does this in two ways. I think confession does this in two ways. First, it destroys pride. Public confession destroys the illusion all of us have that we can be our own law, that we have a right to our own desires and our own selves. And instead, it points to Jesus as the only Lord. Bonhoeffer again writes, the cross of Jesus Christ destroys all pride. We cannot find the cross of Jesus if we shrink from going to the place where it is to be found, namely the public death of a sinner. And we refuse to bear the cross when we are ashamed to take upon ourselves the shameful death of the sinner in confession. So first, public confession destroys pride. Second, public confession is the embodiment of the gospel. When we confess our sins, we don't just say the gospel, we do the gospel. Listen to Bonhoeffer again. He says, in confession, we break through to the true fellowship of the cross of Jesus Christ. In confession, we affirm and accept our cross. In the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a fellow Christian, that is what confession is going to feel like. The deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a fellow Christian, which means before God, we experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old man dies, but it is God who has conquered him. Now we share in the resurrection of Christ and in, uh, and in eternal life. Confession of sin is a radical act that makes zero sense to outsiders. But the purpose of the church demands it. A church that refuses to confess is no longer the church. A church that cannot confess 
cannot point to Jesus and cannot participate in the life of Jesus. Bonhoeffer's words to the German church are words we in the American church, we in life church, me, Christina Hitchcock, must take seriously. Confess, confess, confess. So whether it sounds like it or not, this is really good news. Because <laughs> we're all sinners. There is no sin that can survive the light of confession. And that is the best possible news. Even if confession hurts, it is so good. No sin can survive the light of confession. If you are burdened by sin, now is your chance to confess and really experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and the love and fellowship of God's people. Because we are empowered not only to confess, but to forgive each other. So whether you are someone who is hearing this good news for the first time or whether you're a Christian of many, many years, Bonhoeffer's words speak to all of us. Come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you. And so when we're done, there's going to be people up here who are going to be more than happy, eager to pray with you and to hear, even to hear your confession if the Holy Spirit so moves you. Or you can speak to other members of the church very easily. And so, um, so let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.